we are, before too long, we'll find ourselves in the midst of uh, the political season. Who's looking forward to that? Uh, we'll, be, we'll be inundated with advertisements on the television, maybe phone calls. Somehow they even get your, your cell phone sometimes. Uh, on the radio, we'll, we'll be hearing all about these people who are running for office who want your vote. Um, they, they portray themselves as, as those who will rule well, those who will look out for our best interests, uh, those who will, will pull us up out of the circumstance we're in and give us what we, what we really need. And there are some, I, I've, I've tended to become jaded over the years, but I know that probably that's not as, exactly as it should be. There probably are some who will rule well, some who will look out for the best interests of the citizens, some who will uh, look to, to benefit those of society. Uh, and really, I think it, it also speaks, though, to that desire that each one of us has. We do want someone to rule well. We do want uh, to have leaders who will look out for the good of the people, for those who will uh, rescue us from our present difficult circumstances and provide us with what we need. And I think ultimately, though, this desire points us to something greater than any ruler on this earth or in this world could provide. That we need, we desire a, a generous ruler. One who, is, who will not just look out for preserving his own power or exercising it for his own benefit, but who will exercise it for the benefit of his people. And I think that this is what we have pictured for us in Genesis 14. Uh, we, we are introduced to several firsts in this chapter. We see the first mention of war between kings and nations. We see the first mention of a priest of God. And we see the first mention of God referred to as the Most High. God Most High. As, as Abraham continues in his life of faith, God is continuing to reveal himself to Abram and to us as well and to his people. Uh, remember, God called Abram uh, out of a different sort of background, not worshiping the one true God. And so Abram's getting to know who this God is. Abram's getting to know who this sovereign creator of the universe is. And God continues, little by little, progressively to reveal himself. And in this text, God reveals himself as the great king over all. He is the ruler of all kings and nations. He's the rescuer of the captives. And he is the rewarder of those who seek him. In addition, in this text, we, we shouldn't miss that both Abram and Melchizedek serve as types of Christ, as pointers to Christ, the rescuer of his people, and the great high priest by which we have peace with God. So let's read, follow along with me in Genesis 14 as I probably mangle some of these names and places, but I'll do my best. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. 
And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava, Kiriathame, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then king of Sodom, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketorlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possession of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After this after his return from the defeat of Keter Laomer and king, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Father, would you speak to us by your word? Would you feed us and nourish us, your people, by your word? Would you bring us under conviction under your word and repentance and faith in you as our great king? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know the situation has gotten worse and worse after God created everything and everything was good. We saw sin enter into the picture and things get progressively worse. Sin increases and grows. And this is what we continue to see in this circumstance. 
There's an increase of sin and wickedness. And for the first time, we see an international sort of conflict between kings and their armies. Things continue to get worse. During this time period, there were what we could call suzerains and vassals. Now, suzerains would be stronger, more dominant city-states. The vassals would be subject to them. They would be the weaker states. The suzerain states, the stronger ones, would demand tribute, a yearly tribute perhaps uh, from these weaker states. And in return, they would take care of them. Um, They would protect them from enemies. But they must remain faithful. The weaker state must continue to pay the tribute in order to reap the benefits. And really, it it wasn't an option. This is what they had to do if, if they wanted to not be defeated by this stronger nation. And so this seems to be the case here as well. Keter Lamer, king of Elam, he is the more dominant suzerain, and his servants, his vassal states, the weaker states, are Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, or what he calls Zoar. So the situation is they had served Keter Lamer for 12 years as his vassals until finally they've had enough. They don't want to pay the tribute anymore. We all want to be free, and they wanted to be free. And so they rebel against Elam. But what they didn't realize is that they had awoken the beast in Keterlamer. He rallies not only his troops, but also his allies who come alongside him, these three other kings. And he begins tracking down this rebellion, these five kings who have rebelled against him. We're talking hundreds of miles here that he is traveling. And as he goes, as he is in pursuit of this rebellion, he is defeating nations and tribes and peoples, mighty men, all in pursuit of those who had escaped. And this culminates in the valley, this battle that we read about, this battle in the valley of Siddim. I think what the author wants us to see here is the greatness of these kings, the greatness of Caterlamer, and these forces that are pursuing the rebellion. They're like a hurricane just taking out everything in their path. And they take back Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they go on their way. You notice something probably that God is not mentioned in these, this first part of Genesis 14. He's not mentioned, in fact, until verse 19. But we know from the rest of Scripture and from other books of the Bible, Esther, for instance, just because God is not mentioned somewhere doesn't mean He's not present and active. In fact, He is present. He's working in the midst of this circumstance. He is present, active, and working, even though we don't see Him mentioned in these first verses. And while these nations rage and the kings of the earth counsel together and consolidate their power and try to take the world, God sits in the heavens and laughs because He is sovereign. He is the ultimate king. He's the great king over all the world. In His providence, even in this circumstance, He is orchestrating the events of the world to bring about His glory And to fulfill his promises to his people. And really this, this, these kings, uh, 
Uh, and the fact that God is king, the great king over all, points to a real perennial temptation that we all have. We don't want anyone to be king except for ourselves. See, disobedience to God is not simply disobedience. Disobedience to God is not simply disobedience. It is obeying someone or something other than God. Often, ourselves. When we disobey God, we set ourselves up as kings over our own lives. So whenever you know the command of God, whenever you know what He has told you to do, often we like to say, if I just knew what God wanted me to do, then I would do it. When really we know what God demands of us. He tells us in His Word. He is clear in Scripture how we are to live. But whenever we know the command of God and choose to do otherwise, what you are saying is that you, your, your rule over your life is better than the rule of God over your life. Really, there are two ways to live. God as your king or you as your own king. So examine your own heart in this. Examine your own heart in response to God's authority as king over you. Are you a citizen and subject of God Almighty, the great king? Or are you your own citizen and subject, fulfilling your own hopes and desires and plans? The real problem that we have with with this whole idea of God's kingship over us is that of submission to authority. That God is king over all means that we must submit to him as his subjects. And we have a real problem with this from the very beginning of our lives. We have a problem with submission to authority. Children, consider your own relationship to your parents. This is an authority which God as king has placed over your life. The scripture commands you to honor and obey your parents. So when you disobey your parents, consider that this is more than just disobedience. There's something deeper going on. It's, It's your own rejection of God's authority over you. It's your own sinful tendency to push away authority. We don't want to submit. And I know, if you know my story, you know I'm not one to lecture on obedience to parents. Okay, It was a pretty bad story growing up. I rejected authority every chance I got. I I didn't recognize, I didn't understand that God's had, God had placed authority over me in my parents. And that by submitting to the authority of my parents, I was ultimately submitting to God as king over my life. It's easy for us parents to recognize that rebellion in our children. But you know, it's present in us as well. And we ought to consider what we're teaching our children or those around us when we reject other authority that God has placed over our lives. When we refuse to submit to laws or authorities over us, when we refuse to submit to one another in church, when we think that we can live on our own, separate as individuals, apart from the authority that we have here with one another. This is a great temptation for us to reject God's authority, to reject His kingship. But there's also another temptation that's kind of on the other side of this. And this is the temptation to put our trust ultimately in others. 
in kings or rulers, in politicians, presidents, or congress. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the introduction, there's an election cycle coming up. And don't get the impression that I think it's wrong to participate in the political process. Absolutely. We should vote. We should support. You know, you should feel free to support your candidates. Even run if you, if you think it's wise to do so. But we should never fall for the temptation that this is where it's at. That this is where the power is. That this is where we will have our needs fulfilled. Or that this is what's going to rescue us from our present difficult circumstances. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. For when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. That's from Psalm 146. See, what we really need is not ourselves as king and not an earthly or worldly king over us. What we really need is a king like no other on this earth or throughout history. We need a sovereign king who is not only powerful but also kind. We need a king who will reign forever and not one day die and his rule will come to an end. We need a king who will establish his plans and carry them forward forever. And this is what we have in Christ. Christ is the king. Psalm 2 tells us that the one who sits in the heavens laughs and says, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And really, skipping forward just a little bit, Abram's taking of the nations, defeating the nations and ruling over them is a a picture of Christ's reign one day when all the nations will gather around His throne and worship Him. When everything will belong to Him in heaven and on earth. We should also note that one clear picture of Christ ruling as King is in the church. Of course, everything belongs to Him. He created everything. But we get a clearer picture than anywhere else in the church. Where Christ is ruling over His people by by His word. Where we are subjects of His kingdom where we serve one another, where we serve the great king, we should serve as a great contrast to the kingdoms of this world. Here, in our fellowship, in every fellowship which belongs to Christ, as king, we owe him our allegiance, our worship, our trust. So who is your king? Who is it that you trust? Whose authority do you submit to? Who are you obeying and worshiping? Because God is the great King who rules over all. In this passage, though, we also see that God is the rescuer of the captives. He's the rescuer of the captives. So we might begin to think, what does all this have to do with Abram? These kings who are going to battle with one another, seemingly 
abstracted from anything about Abram. But in verse 12, we find out what it has to do with Abram. But it's almost just a passing mention. Oh yeah, they also, not only did they take Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions, they also took Lot, Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in all his possessions and went their way. Now the last we had heard of Lot, he was dwelling as far as the city of Sodom. But here we read that he has moved himself into the city of Sodom itself. Remember, Sodom represents all that is wicked. All that is against God and all that has rejected God's authority. What we should recognize here in Lot's circumstance and in the fact that he was captured is that sin has consequences. Sin has great consequences. Consider consider this in your fight against sin. And Lot's foolish choice is coming back to haunt him. Now this reminds us again that God is fulfilling His promises. He has promised to bless all those who bless Him, Abram, and to curse all those who go against Him. What this reminds us of uh, is God's promise that those connected to Abram, those connected to Him, will be blessed. In virtue of being connected to Him, with Him, will receive blessing. But those who separate from Him will no longer enjoy that blessing. Now consider yourself, put yourself in Abram's position. What would you be tempted to do? Your nephew foolishly chose to dwell in Sodom. He foolishly chose it because it was beautiful, even though it was filled with wickedness. He rejected the the rights that you had by choosing it himself and not deferring to you. What would your temptation be? Serves him right. It's what he gets. It's what he gets for disrespecting me and choosing a wicked land in which to dwell. He's made his own bed. Now let him sleep in it. But the author tells us nothing about that sort of attitude with Abram. Abram goes after Lot. Remember last week we talked about how Abram in in that passage was laying down his rights for the sake of others. He continues to do this. He goes after Lot. When Abram heard that his kinsman, that word there refers to Lot as his brother, had been taken captive, he mustered his troops, 318 of them, along with his allies, and pursued Keterlamer and his allies. He divided his forces in a stealth attack at night and soundly defeated them, capturing all the plunder in Lot and all his possessions. This points again to God fulfilling His promise. Abram is is becoming a great nation already. He's able to to defeat these other nations. Notice a few things about Abram in particular in this circumstance. Notice first his loyalty and care for his kinsmen, for his brother. Acting not according to his own rights, but according to others' needs. He foregoes his own rights and goes after his nephew. Let this be uh, a reminder to us of our responsibility to one another. Not only to our physical brothers and sisters, our physical family, but even more so, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, the household of faith. We are to, to take special concern and care after one another. 
let us not just passively do so, but let us, let us be actively engaged in pursuing one another, in caring for one another, in showing loyalty to one another. Abram serves as an example of one who is living by faith. And it leads him to care for his kinsmen. But also notice his faith leads him uh, to be courageous in the face of danger. He has courage in the midst of danger. These kings were undefeated. They had marched south, taking on everyone who they encountered, and they were unstoppable. But Abram is motivated by faith and courageously goes out and attacks them. Just as last week Abram demonstrated his life of faith, he continues to do so now. He can go into battle without fear because he knows that God has promised, I will bless you. I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. He's trusting in the promise. He's not afraid. And this also would be instructive to those original readers of this text. To the Israelites. As they pursued the promised land, they would need to trust in the God of the promise. To trust that He would deliver on what He had said He would do. They would need to be of good courage. Be strong. Take courage in the face of danger. In the face of wars and powerful, mighty kings. Notice also the greatness of Abram. The author wanted us to see the greatness of Ketelaramur and the allied kings, how strong, how powerful, they're unstoppable, they're undefeatable. But now they are swallowed up in victory by Abram. Amazing. Great are the allied kings, greater still is Abram the Hebrew. I love how the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke puts it. The narrator magnifies the greatness of this hero, Abram. On earth, God's faithful warrior, though lacking the title king, is in fact a greater king. Ultimately, we know that it wasn't simply Abram winning the battle, but God was the one who delivered his enemies into his hand. This is what we read in Melchizedek's blessing in verse 20. Blessed by God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek gives us the theological understanding of the historical events. He interprets for us what just happened. It wasn't just Abram defeating these enemies and rescuing Lot. It is God who is king over all who is rescuing the captives. It's God who is delivering the people into Abram's hands. God calls us to to imitate Abram's life of faith. In his courage, living by faith in the promise, to to have courage in the midst of danger, to, to care after one another. But if I'm going to identify myself in the story, if I'm honest with myself, I have to identify myself more with Lot than anyone else. I have not lived by faith as I ought to have. I have not courageously pursued the things of God, knowing that God keeps His promises. We all, in fact, by our own selfish desires, 
have been led astray into captivity. And this is the way it is with every human who's ever walked the earth except Christ. We all need to be rescued. And you might think, what do I need to be rescued from? I'm not in captivity to anyone. And yet, it's Jesus Himself who spoke in this way about sin in John 8. He says, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. So if you are not in Christ, this is true of you. You are a captive to sin. You are a slave to sin and you are bound for destruction. What you need is someone to rescue you from your captivity, to free you from your enslavement. And this is what Christ came to do. Abram really is a pointer to a type of Christ, the rescuer of his people. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Abram, in love and care for life, he risked his possessions and his own life to rescue him. But Christ went all the way and died to rescue sinners. Christ himself could have said they've made their bed, they can sleep in it. They're just reaping the consequences of their own sin. They're just getting what is coming to them. But in His great love, He died for sinners. In His great love, for even those who rebelled against Him, Christ was crucified. He demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and He rose from the dead in victory, defeating every force of evil, defeating sin and death forever. So this is the offer that you have from God. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. And cling with faith to Christ who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead. Trust in Jesus to rescue you, and He will. All of us wish we could be rescued from certain circumstances. You, you have circumstances right now that I'm sure you wish you could just be out of. You could be rescued from. Finances, dead-end jobs, difficult consequences from our sins. But there's one thing in particular that you ought to be concerned about. Being rescued from your sin and the punishment, which is to come. Your only hope for rescue is Christ. Cling to Him in faith. Call on Him to save you. And Christians, you can call on Christ to save you too. This is not just for unbelievers. We need Christ. I need you every hour. Every hour, I need you. This is something that is for us as well. Paul himself founded a law within himself that when he wants to do right, evil lies close at hand. Listen to how he puts it in Romans 7. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Did you hear that? The law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He saw this as a sort of captivity that even affected him, though he had been rescued by Christ. Wretched man that I am, he recognizes the the corruption that lies within him still. Who will deliver me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. And a sentence later, he gives one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. When I think about how many times God has rescued me, it moves me to worship. I mean, He has rescued me providentially in ways that I can't even count. Ways that I don't even know where He has protected me, where He has cared for me. When I consider how He has rescued me from my own sin and selfishness, how can we not be moved to worship? He has rescued you from sin and death. He's the great king who rescues the captives. But finally, he's also the great king who rewards those who seek him. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. In verses 17 to 24, we see this meeting with two kings. This is after the battle with these great kings. Uh, Kind of a victory celebration. He's coming back from uh, winning the victory, from rescuing Lot and all of his possessions. It says, we are told that the king of Sodom goes out to meet him. And then also we are suddenly confronted with this other figure that we haven't seen before. Melchizedek, king of Salem. He brings bread and wine uh, for a feast. Now notice this contrast between these two kings. You have the king of Sodom, who represents all that is wicked. And you have the king of Salem, Melchizedek. His name itself means king of righteousness. Salem means peace. He's the king of righteousness and peace. And Salem refers to Jerusalem. So we have this clear contrast between Melchizedek, king of Salem, and the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes for selfish reasons uh, to, to see Abram, this great man. The king of Salem brings out the makings for a feast. Bread and wine a commu- for a communal f- uh, feast which indicates peace between them. The first, kings out of, the first words out of the king of Sodom's mouth were, Give me. And the first words out of the king of Salem's mouth are, Blessed be Abram, giving him a blessing. There's a clear contrast between these two kings, and there's also a clear contrast between how, uh, on how Abram responds to these kings. But notice the greatness of Melchizedek. King of Salem and priest of God Most High, And he blesses Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, we're told, gives a tenth of everything he has to him. Great are the allied kings. Greater still is Abram. Yet we see here one even greater than Abram. One who blesses Abram. And who does the blessing Who does the blessing of another? One who is superior, one who is greater, blesses the lesser. And Abraham gives a tenth of everything that he has to this man. Abram recognizes Melchizedek as one who is greater. 
even a representation, a, a representative of God himself. And Melchizedek disappears from the narrative almost as soon as he appears. In verse 21, it's the king of Sodom who appears and speaks to Abram. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Think about that. Who does this guy think he is? He is the one who has been defeated in battle and rescued by Abram. And he says, okay, just give me. You can keep the goods. I'm giving them to you. But I'll keep the people. It's Abraham's to belong with. It belongs to him as the spoils of war. But Abram swears an oath to God. Again, laying down his own rights for the sake of others. That's what it means that he, when he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He, he makes this oath. And what does he swear? That he would take nothing, not even the smallest thing, not, in, not even the smallest possession, the thread or sandal strap, just in case anyone would come back and say that, well, he owed me for all that he has. Just in case anyone else would say that it was by man and not by God that Abram had attained his wealth. All that he asks for is the share of what the young men have eaten and the share of those who went with him. But he offers the goods to his allies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Now contrast, notice that contrast in Abram's response to each of these kings. He rejects the offer of the king of Sodom. Really, it's not his offer to give, but he, re- he rejects it anyway. Why? Because he will not associate with anything, anyone who is wicked, set against the Lord himself. But also, he will not use worldly means to advance the promises of God. At least not in this circumstance. We will see in another that he does. But in this circumstance, he will not use worldly means to advance the promise of God. Rather, he will wait for God to give him his reward. This is yet another example for us as we seek not the treasures that this earth can give us, but as we wait for a greater reward from God. As we lay up not treasures here on this earth, but as we store up treasures for another world that are lasting, that are eternal, that are guarded for us in heaven. Rather than pursuing the rewards and treasures of this earth, we must be patient and wait for God who is our rewarder. And we get a peek ahead to the next passage and we see that's exactly what happens with Abram in verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. You've, You've given away all these riches, all this wealth, all this reward. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God is the great king who rewards those who seek him. In regards to Melchizedek, Abram receives this blessing from God and gives homage to the priest with a tenth of everything. He knows that Melchizedek is great, but there is one greater still. The God Most High, El Elyon is the term. And there 
is one to whom Melchizedek himself points. See, Melchizedek is also a type of Christ, a pointer to Christ. We see him mentioned in two other places in the Bible. He's mentioned in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 5 through 7. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, a messianic psalm, because it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Melchizedek points to the one who is to come, who is a priest king, who will defeat all his enemies, above and beyond, even the priesthood of the Levites, stands this priesthood of Melchizedek. And this is what the author of Hebrews argues throughout his whole book, that Christ is greater, that Christ is supreme, that he is superior to every type and shadow and hero of the past. Christ is greater. He's a greater king. He's a greater priest. He gives us a greater hope. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Their former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than that appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Here in Genesis 14, the idea, this idea of a priest is introduced for the first time. It's almost as if God, the great king, is showing there must be a mediator. Even for one as great as Abram, there must be a mediator if you are to enter into the throne room of the great king. God is revealing himself. He is a high and holy king. God most high. And if we are to approach his throne, we will need a mediator. One who will go between us. One who will present us to the king. One who can speak to us from God, one who will speak to God and intercede on our behalf. And Jesus Christ is this great high priest who makes peace not by the blood of lambs, but by his own blood as he sacrificed himself for us. Consider what a great high priest you have in Christ. 
You have peace with God through Him. Your sins have been paid for in full by His once and for all sacrifice. And this causes you to rejoice. Consider also that you can go to God in prayer with confidence. Knowing that He hears your prayers. Knowing that He accepts you coming into His presence. Knowing not only that He hears you, but that He sympathizes with you in your weakness and will answer you in a way that is best. This encourages you to pray. Consider also that your very worship is made acceptable to God. Because of Christ. And this leads us to worship. To worship with all of our hearts the one who is worthy. Because God is the great king and he is building his kingdom. He is building his kingdom so that one day all the nations, as we see this picture here in Genesis 14, all the nations will be under his rule, will be under his authority, and they will submit to him in worship. And every knee will bow down before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's called us to do that here and now and to be a part of his reaching the nations. Let's pray that he would have his will done in us, that his kingdom would, be, would come. Our Heavenly Father, so often we do reject your authority over us. So often we put our trust in others or even in ourselves. So often we seek the rewards that come in this world rather than waiting patiently for you to return as our great king and establish your kingdom once and for all. We pray that as we go, you would send us out as citizens of your kingdom and ambassadors who are proclaiming to a world lost in sin and devoted to the kingdoms of this world Turn to Christ. He is your hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.